Father, this is exciting for us, this sacred time that you have set apart for us to be with you. We enjoy this. Please give us more opportunity to spend time with you or just wake up our minds to the fact that we have that opportunity and we need to take it. We love you, Jesus. We ask that you will be with us as we study your word now. In your name we pray, amen. I was sitting on a couch in Marisol and Joe's home. There's a couch on this side of the room. Joe is sitting right there in his easy chair. And there's a couch on this side of the room. Maybe I should move this illustration over to here. So here's a couch. Here's a couch. And Joe is sitting right there in his easy chair. Joe was a... Uh, former Seventh-day Adventist. Forty years prior to this, Joe had married a Roman Catholic. His family disowned him, told him that they didn't want to see him anymore. I'm like, Ooh, Joe, that's, that's pretty harsh. I don't understand why a family could do that, but that's what happened in Joe's situation. So, Joe is disowned by his family. Joe does not ever come back to the Seventh-day Adventist church until one Sabbath he's driving by and he decides, hey, Maybe I need to go in there today. He goes into the church where we are holding an evangelistic meeting. He makes a decision to get rebaptized and to join the church, and he does that. So this is the Monday after Joe has been baptized. And so we go over to Joe's home to visit with Joe and Marisol. And as we are visiting with Joe and Marisol, I am sitting on this couch over here with Pastor Ron Werner. Pastor Ron Werner is the pastor, was the pastor, he's retired now I understand, of the Grand Round Seventh-day Adventist Church in Oregon, as well as the Sheridan Church in Oregon. That was his district. So he, he loves visiting. Praise the Lord for pastors that love to visit. It, they may make you uncomfortable, but they sure do love visiting you, by the way. Not to see what you have on your coffee table as far as magazines are concerned, but just to say hello. Pastors don't come to people's houses to see what they're doing wrong. So just keep that in mind. So I'm sitting over here on this couch. Marisol is sitting over there. Marisol looks very unhappy. Joe is sitting here just reveling in his new relationship with Jesus Christ. Praising the Lord that the weight has rolled off of his back of not having been to church in over 40 years to the Seventh-day Adventist church. And uh, so I'm looking at Marisol, and Marisol is like this. Now, do you know what this means? Typically, it means that somebody is closed off. They're not open to hearing what you have to say, or they're really evaluating what you have to say. It could be a good thing, or it could be a bad thing, right? So, well, here's Marisol. She just looks madder than a hornet, and she's got her hands like this. And so we're just chit-chatting, and Marisol's hands come down. And the moment Marisol's hands come down, I said to Marisol, Marisol, tell me, which Sabbath would you like to become a Seventh-day Adventist Christian? Now, you will have to forgive me for trying to do my best, or at least uh, a type of accent, an Hispanic accent. So please forgive me if I get it wrong, okay? So Marisol's sitting over here. I asked Marisol, which Sabbath would you like to become a Seventh-day Adventist Christian? And Marisol said, You think I need to be baptized? I know cheating. I know smoking. I know beating the children. I know beating my husband. I feed him. I love him. He cheating on me. He need to be rebaptized. I don't need to be rebaptized. Here I am. <clears throat> Did Marisol need to be rebaptized, by the way? Okay, she had an issue with anger, but that's one thing. <clears throat> I, al 
almost put on my boxing gloves. Because that's what many of us do. People that we work with say, man, why do you go to church on Saturday? I mean, why can't you come play golf with the guys on tomorrow? I mean, it's, it's a work outing. Why can't you do that? Well, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11 says. Exodus chapter 31, verse 16 says. Luke chapter 4, verse 16 says. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 through 12 says. Revelation chapter whatever says. Revelation this, Matthew that. And when they're finished, they don't ever want to talk to you again about any scriptural topic. Many of us put our gloves on. Somebody says to me one day at work, I just can't stand the fact, this is when I was a truck driver, I can't stand the fact that my grandmother is in heaven right now. She, his grandmother had just passed away. He's another truck driver. Completely distraught because like, she was like his mother to him. Completely distraught that she's up there now able to see everything that he's doing down here that's bad. And he wasn't the nicest of fellas. And I opened up my Bible. I always carried my pocket Bible. I carried my dagger. You know, a big Bible's a sword. I carried my little dagger, you know. It's, it's not the size of a wallet. And I pulled it out and I said, man, you familiar with the Bible at all? He says, yeah, I'm familiar. I said, can you find Ecclesiastes? He said, no. I said, no problem. I'll find it for you. I found Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I handed it to him. I said, read verse 5 and 6. Nobody else is in the driver's lounge. So he real quick reads it. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know not anything, neither have they any more reward for anything that is done under the sun. And the memory of them is forgotten. And he looks up at me and he says, she don't know what I'm doing? I said, what'd the book say? He said, nope. She don't know what I'm doing. I said, okay, thanks. He gave me the Bible back. That guy was so grateful to me for showing him that the Bible said that his grandmother couldn't see him. Now, maybe I should have left it with his grandmother seeing him, right? Because then he would have been a little more cognizant of the stuff that he was doing that wouldn't glorify the Lord. But you can't even let somebody that, that wants to glorify Satan live in darkness, you understand? You've got to share the truth with him, but you've got to do it in a way that is palpable, that is, that is uh, chewable. I mean, how many of you like greens? You like greens? How many of you like greens with no salt and no lemon juice? Okay. So you've got to put some salt and lemon juice on the Bible when you feed people the Bible. You understand? Good to see you, brother. All these people popping up. So, here we are. Marisol, madder than a hornet. She's like this again. Completely closed off. Just glaring at me. And I started to open my Bible. And I was going to go to Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. And I was going to show her why she needed to be rebaptized Because she hadn't been keeping the Sabbath for 40 years. And she knew about it. But she said that she loved Jesus. And if somebody loves Jesus, then certainly, because John 14, 15, if you love Jesus, he says, keep my commandments. So certainly you love Jesus. That's what I wanted to do. And as I was opening my Bible, I, I did not hear an audible voice, but I get this deep impression that goes like this. Scott, you didn't say anything about baptism. And so I'm, I'm sitting there, and inside of my head I'm having this conversation. You're right, I didn't say anything about baptism. Ding! Marisol says, you think I need to be rebaptized? 
I know drinking, I know smoking, I know beating the kids, I know beating my husband, I know I good to him, I love him, he mean to me. Who said something about baptism in that room? Marisol. Who said it to Marisol? I asked Marisol that. I said, Marisol, who said anything about baptism? She said, I don't know. I said, did I say anything about baptism? No. Did Pastor Werner? No. Did, did Joe? No. I said, who do you think said something about baptism then? She said, who do you think say something about baptism? <laughs> I said, Marisol, I think I know who said something about baptism. And so at this point, Marisol's arms become unfolded. So now Marisol is beginning to get open to what I'm saying again, right? And so I asked Marisol again. I said, Marisol, which Sabbath do you want to become a Seventh-day Adventist Christian? And that arms come up, iron curtain comes down, and she said, you think I need to be rebaptized? Same scene, second time. I wanted to get the gloves on. But I just said, you know, Marisol, it's evident that someone in this room is talking to you, but the rest of us can't hear him. She said, who you think is talking to me? I said, who do you think is talking to you? She said, him. And I went over to Marisol and I sat down beside Marisol. And I opened my Bible to James chapter 2, verse 10. James chapter 2, Hebrews, then you have the book of James immediately to the left, chapter 2, verse 10. And I handed, I went over here, I sat on the couch beside Marisol. So I'm not moving this couch, I'm just moving the illustration. And I gave Marisol my Bible. And I said, Marisol, can you read James chapter 2, verse 10 for me? And she started to read it, read it in her mind silently. And I said, Marisol, would you mind reading out loud for us? She couldn't make it through the verse. She started weeping, crying, sobbing. And when someone is doing, is in that particular type of an emotional state, you don't put your arm on them, you don't put your hand on them because that immediately arrests the emotion. That's what science tells us. When somebody's being emotional, when you touch them and put your arm around them, it arrests the emotion and it doesn't allow the emotion to continue and to complete itself. So I'm just sitting there. She finally stops sobbing and she looks at me and she says, Pastor, I know keep it a Sabbath for 40 years. I know keep it a Sabbath. I want to keep it a Sabbath. But I don't keep it a Sabbath. I'm so mad with his family, Pastor. If I keep it a Sabbath, they will be happy and they make life so miserable for me. I got up. I went back and I sat down beside Pastor Werner. Conversation goes on for a little bit longer. No folded arms. I said, Marisol, 
Which Sabbath would you like to become a Seventh-day Adventist Christian? This Sabbath or the next Sabbath? She said, I think I want to be baptized the next Sabbath. Conviction. That was the first time in my ministry that I had seen and recognized the voice of God speaking to someone's conscience. Turn with me to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the 16th chapter. The Bible says in John chapter 16, verse 7, we'll start in verse 7. John 16, verse 7 says, Nevertheless, Jesus speaking, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now, Bible text, book, chapter, verse, that tells me specifically who the Comforter is. Anybody? Bible text and verse that tells me who the comforter is. John, John 14, 26, you said it, you read it. John 14, 26. But the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, depending on your versions. So who's the comforter? The Holy Spirit. You have every biblical precedent to say that. It's a fact. You can stand on it. Somebody can argue with you, but they can't argue with God. So, the Comforter, verse 7 of chapter 16. Verse 8, rather. And when he is come, when the Comforter is come, Jesus is going to send the Comforter, right? By the way, there's a beautiful Bible study that goes through the Feast of Pentecost where you actually see that 10 days after Jesus ascends in that cloud of angels, he is crowned king, he's anointed with the Holy Spirit the second time, once here on this earth, once in heaven. He is our high priest, is anointed as the high priest, and all the Holy Spirit is poured out down here. Amazing study. Anyway, the Bible says, and when he has come, that's the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. That is what will happen when the Holy Spirit begins to speak to people's hearts. The Holy Spirit will speak to people and He will convict them of sin. He will convict them of righteousness or right doing. And He will convict them of judgment to come. Are you tracking with me? Sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. When you study the Bible with people, they are going to be one of two things. They will either be confused or they will be convicted both of which have the exact same outward indication. If someone is confused about a topic that you study with them, they're going to get upset. They're not going to want you to come back because what you say makes absolutely no sense to them. If your Bible study is clear and concise and understandable, people are not confused, they are convicted. And whether people respond positively or negatively to conviction, it is a good thing because you know that they are under what? Conviction. 
that the voice of God is speaking to them. Joe, this was another gentleman. This was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'd studied the Bible with Joe every Tuesday at 1 o'clock for the last six weeks. He absolutely loved the Bible studies that we were doing. I get there one week, and uh, he's like, man, this stuff is so good. Leave me some material. Leave me some material. So I leave him some material. Then I get back the next week. He's like, whoa, man, that was good material. They were Amazing Facts Bible study guides. Leave me some more material. I leave him some more material. About week six, I come over to his house. His junky old car is in the, the apartment parking lot. His sliding glass doors open like it always is when I come home. Uh, his cats are outside like they always are when I come to his home to study. And I knock on the door. And I always knock seven times because it has a good ring to it. No answer. I'm a kind of persistent guy. I wait for a little bit because I figure maybe he's using the restroom. I wait for about 30 seconds. No response. For five minutes, every 30 seconds, I knock seven times on that door because I know Joe is home. He's either dead, dying, or ignoring me. Now, one thing I need to tell you about Joe is that Joe was a collector of swords. Samurai swords, daggers, Knives of all kind, glittery ones, dull ones, iron ones, bronze ones. He even had a metal, a bronze metal figure in, in the corner of his room that, uh, you know, it was the shell, like the armor that the, the knights wore. And in, in, one, in one of the hands was this long stick. And on the top of that stick was one of those, I'm going to take your head off type hatchets. You understand? Exactly. And so... The, the last time, let's see, that would have been 12 times, no, 5 minutes, 30, that would have been the 10th time that I knocked on that door. The door flies open. And Joe says, what do you want? And I just got in his mode, you know, be all things to all people. I said, what do you mean, what do I want? He says, why do you keep knocking on my door? I said, because we always study the Bible on Tuesday at 1 o'clock. He said, I don't want to study the Bible with you anymore. I don't want to join your church anymore. I don't want to be baptized by you anymore. I want you to leave me alone. And then he begins to slam the door. And I don't know why God did this. But something picked up my leg and put my foot in that door as it was closing. And at that very moment, I asked God, why would you do this to me? He's got, a lot of, he's got a lot of sharp things in there. And he looked at me, and Joe was a big guy. I mean, bigger than any of us that are in this room. Big guy. Tall. Thick. And he looked at me. He looked down at my foot. He looked up at me, and I'm just praying the whole time, Lord, don't let me die. And if I do, I'll see you soon because I'm working for you right now and you put my foot in this door. So if I die while I'm working for you, then I get to go to heaven. And I literally took comfort in that because this guy's big and he was madder than a hornet. He said, what'd you do that for? I said, Joe, you owe me an explanation. He said, what do I owe you an explanation about? I said, because you and I have been, I just got right back in his mode. I said, because you and I have been studying the Bible now for about six weeks, and all of a sudden you won't answer the door? That's plumb ridiculous. He says, get in my house. And I was like, okay, Lord, here we go. 
<laughs> and I stepped into his house, and I'm looking at all those shiny objects. And he said, it's that Bible study. I said, that Bible study? So what Bible study? He said, that Bible study you left me, the one that's green, that has this guy that's pouring water into his car, and it says, you wouldn't do this to your car, would you? It's pouring water into the gas tank. I said, a green Bible study? Where's that green Bible study? Because I'm just getting mad at the Bible study, right? He's mad at the Bible study? I want to get mad at the Bible study. I said, show me that Bible study. He's looking all around. I mean, he wasn't throwing knives, but he was, he was moving things very quickly, looking for this Bible study. And I see this green crumpled up Bible study in the corner by the, you know, the guy with the big thing. And I said, Joe, is that it over there? And I run over there because I didn't want Joe to go by the guy and get the thing. <laughs> I pick it up. I smooth it out. I said, is this it? And sure enough, it was. And I gave him the Bible study. I said, here, you show me where this Bible study got under your skin. He said, that Bible study told me I couldn't smoke. I said, get out of here. <laughs> I said, you got to show me that. He turned in that Bible study. He's an amazing, amazing facts Bible study guy. It said, and he read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. I said, no, 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 Joe. We've got to read this out of the Bible. Get your Bible. So he got his Bible. He said, I want you to know, I don't want you to be in my house right now. I said, I'm comfortable with that. The Lord brought me into your house, and, and he's going to take care of me. No. I said, the Lord brought me in here, so we've got to finish this. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. He reads it. What does it say? Whatsoever you eat, or whatsoever you drink, or whatsoever you do, do it all to the glory of God. I said, Joe, that don't say a thing about smoking. He said, well, it did when I read it. Could I have gone to 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 and said to him, the one that destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him? Could I have done that? Could have. Could I have gotten on boxing gloves and actually annihilated this brother? I could have. And Joe said, well, it, it said that to me when I read it. I said, well, you know, Joe, what does the Bible say about our bodies? He said, well, our bodies are the temple of God. I said, could it be that that's why when you read this verse, you understood from God that you shouldn't be smoking? He said, it could be. He could be. He said, but you don't want to know what else? I said, what? He said, that Bible study told me that I couldn't eat shrimp anymore. I said, it did? He said, yeah. I said, where? He turns over to the food section of that Bible study. And he says, right here, it says in Leviticus chapter 11, you can't eat shellfish. I said, let's go to Leviticus chapter 11. I said, what verses are it? And he knew exactly what was going to happen. We get to Leviticus chapter 11. Fins and scales. I said, Joe, who told you you couldn't eat shrimp? God did. I said, well, what are you going to do? He said, man, I rolled two packages of cigarettes in the morning. I've done that for the last 20 years. He went over to his refrigerator. He opened up his refrigerator, and there was styrofoam container with cellophane on it after styrofoam container with cellophane on it after styrofoam container with cellophane on it. All of it was full of shrimp. He said, and I've eaten shrimp every day of my life for the last 20 years. And I'm not giving it up for you, and I'm not giving it up for God. I said, no problem. If you ever change your mind, Joe, here's my card. Here's my phone number. Just give me a call. It's been a pleasure knowing you. You and I are friends. If you ever just want to call and hang out, call and hang out. Never have heard from Joe.
Sometimes people respond to conviction in a negative way. What do you do when someone is convicted and you are studying the Bible with them? What is it that you do? I went over to um, Ron and Carol's house. Ron and Carol came to our evangelistic meetings in Florida in 2000, fall of 2010. And Ron and Carol sat on the second row back. Joe, is that your name? Uh, Right to the left of where Joe is sitting. They sat right there. And Carol left in the middle of the meetings, like night number six, she left and didn't come back until almost the end of the meetings, but Ron kept coming. And Carol had to go out of town and take care of her grandkids, and then she came back. And Ron and Carol have what they call Scotty night at their house. That was an evangelistic meeting that we recorded, and so we had DVDs. And so for the next four or five months, every Tuesday night, they would put in one of the DVDs that had me on it preaching again, and they would dissect every word that I said. Every word. And so Ron says to me one day, they continued coming to my Tuesday night Bible study. Ron says to me one night, Scott, I need you to visit me in my house. I said, perfect. I'd love to do that. He said, I got some questions for you. I said, Ron, praise the Lord. I'm excited about your questions. He said, I'm going to write all, and most of the time when people say I've got some questions for you, they don't want to give you the advance warning to know what their questions are because they want to be able to see if they can get you, right? Well, Ron said to me, Scott, here's my questions. <laughs> and he gave me about four, it was four or six sheets of yellow paper front and back with questions on it. Front and back. He said, I want you to find answers to these questions. Then I want you, when you're ready, come on over. I glanced through it. I said, Ron, when, when can I come to your house? He said, you already have the answers to those? I said, I believe the Word of God can answer every one of these questions. He says, well, when do you want to come over? Made an appointment with him. Took my father-in-law with me, who was one of my students at the time. It's pretty fun when you teach your father-in-law. That's pretty awesome. Your father-in-law has to do what you tell him to do for four months. That's as long as that lasted. But... Um, He graduated. We go over to their house. I've got the piece of paper in my hand, all those papers in my hand. And Ron said, Scott, I want you to know that Carol and I are sincere seekers of Bible truth. We don't have any texts up our sleeve that we're going to pull out and try to confuse you with. I said, so Ron, if, if we clear this up, then... The things that are preventing you from making a decision will be cleared up. He said, yeah. I said, so as long as we clear this up, you'll make a decision. Yeah. It's okay. We started going through that list. Started off with food. We went to reference after reference after reference after reference after reference. Then we went to another topic, reference after reference after reference, just letting the Word of God talk. And when we were finished, Ron says, well, you have answered all of our questions. Thank you very much for coming over. I said, thank you for letting me come over. I'll see you Tuesday night. He said, we may be at church. I said, praise the Lord. They started coming to church. They came to church for like six months. 
Pastor Donald Shaw, our pastor in Lady Lake, Florida, went to visit them. Pastor Shaw comes back from that visit. He says, they're going to join the church. And he gives me the date that they're going to join the church. My friends, when people are convicted, some of them get upset and they don't want to hear what the Word of God has to say. But in every instance, you must take them back to the Word of God. So when I give a Bible study, this is what I do all through that Bible study. I am gaining little decisions in that Bible study all the time. Is this clear? Okay, now I want you to notice. I just, I just gained a decision by asking you that question. I gained decisions all along during my Bible studies. Is this clear? She said, hmm? I just gained a decision. What I just shared with her is clear to her. She's not confused. Anything I say later about what I asked if it was clear on, she will be convicted on now, not confused on. You understand the concept. Your information has to be clear. For instance, does it really matter what day we worship God? You will meet people that will say, I worship God seven days a week, but you only worship Him one day a week. You ever had anybody tell you that? People tell me that. And I say, oh, come on now. I worship God seven days a week too. I wake up, have my morning devotions, spend time with God. Is that what you're talking about when you say worship God every day of the week? They say, yeah. I say, well, I do that. He says, okay, then what's so special about your Sabbath? And I go through this very simple illustration. The first three days of creation week, God created an empty space. The second three days of creation week, God fills up day one with day four. He fills up day two with day five. He fills up day three with day six. Go home and plot that out on a piece of paper. It's very cool. So then what did God do with the seventh day? Two texts. I go to Joshua. I go to Exodus. The place where you're standing is holy ground. The only thing that made it holy was the presence of God. So what makes the Sabbath holy? God's presence is in it. Does that make a difference to somebody that says you should worship God every day of the week? It does. And the Sabbath then becomes a relationship concern with Christ. Not just a day of the week. Powerful how that impacts people when you're studying Scripture with them. What I do is when I'm finished with a Bible study and I ask someone the question, I ask this question, you could write this down, very simple, three words, four words. What would keep you? Today you and I have studied the Word of God. God was right from Babylon to Medo-Persia, Medo-Persia to Greece, Greece to, that's right, Greece to Rome, Rome to divided Rome, and then divided Rome to the stone. What you bet God's going to be right about the stone? And they say, I bet he's going to be right. And I say, are you willing to bet your life on what is contained in this book? What would keep you? Now, pastor, if you're saying, if you're saying to me, am I willing to, to just put it all on the line for that book? Is that what you're saying to me, pastor? You know what that question is called? Conviction. And so, I say, now, my friend, let me ask you, what would keep you from laying it all on the line on this book? 
And they say, well, you know, if, if I do that, people are going to say I'm a religious nut. And I'll say, okay, no problem. Can I write religious nut on this piece of paper? Sure. Okay, what, what would keep you? Well, not only am I going to be a religious nut, but I could probably lose my job. So can I write lose my job here? Sure. What would keep you? All the reasons are listed that would keep them. And then I'll turn that piece of paper around. I'll hand it to them and I'll say, now if, if we can look at God's word and God's word can take care of all of those, will you make the decision? Yeah? Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. And so what I do is I, man, I, tur- I take the piece of paper back. I put it on the table, the coffee table, wherever it is we're studying. And I say, let's see what God has to say about this. Now, at life, I give my students, I don't have one here. Do you have it in your Bible still, that list of excuses? Yeah. You still have that in your Bible? Is your Bible here? Okay, your other Bible. What I do at life is I give my students a list of typical excuses people give for not making decisions. I'll lose my job, I'll lose my family, uh, my employer's going to be upset, uh, I won't be able to feed my family, etc., etc., etc. And so when I began my ministry, I had this list of texts that would answer all of those excuses, and I would literally go over to the people that I'm studying the Bible with, I would sit next to them, and I would say, okay, here's the list of the reasons that you feel you cannot do what God is asking you to do. I went to a class And in this class, they gave me this piece of paper. And this piece of paper lists the most common reasons why people cannot obey God's word. So let's see if we can find your reasons on this sheet. And then let's read the verses beside it and see what God has to say. And they're like, you've got a piece of paper in your Bible that tells you all of my excuses? And I say, I don't know if if they're excuses, but, you know, these are the most common reasons that people give for not doing what God asked them to do. And sure enough, all of theirs are on there in one way or another. And God just chips away, just chips away all those excuses until somebody makes that decision based on what God told them. If you encourage someone to quit their job and they do it based on what you said, they're going to come to you for money. They're going to come to you to provide for them. They're going to come to you to complain about it. If you always point them to the Word of God when they are making that decision and that it is God that is asking them to do something for Him, then they will come to you and they will say, you know, I really don't understand what God is doing here. But I can't make it. I lost my job when I started doing this. And I I can't make it anymore. And then you're, you're able to say, well, let's see what God has to say about that. And you open it up. And my friends, I want you to understand, soul winning is not something that you do one day a week. When somebody loses their job, This is why small groups are so sweet when it comes to people making decisions because there's a group of people that they can depend on rather than just one person. Does that make sense? By the way, when I teach small groups, I teach that in the small group setting, you always need to have one empty chair because that always tells people that we need to bring somebody else into this small group. It's a neat concept. So when somebody loses their job, you may have to pay a light bill. 
You may. What happened in the book of Acts? Everything they had was common with each other. Somebody needed food, they got it. Somebody needed a, an oil bill paid, <laughs> they got it. You understood, yeah. Thank you. So when you win souls, when you study the Word of God with them and they get excited about it because you're studying it in Jesus' method, when you introduce them to the Jesus, which is the central theme of every Bible study that you do, and they make a decision to follow Jesus and lose their job or lose their family or whatever. By the way, Tierra, her mother basically disowned her for making the decision to become a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. All of her family was going to come to her baptism. Not one ended up coming. Not one. And Tierra told my wife, you know, I feel like I've I feel like I've lost my family. And after Tierra stood up for God and made that decision, her mother has again started helping her. And that was just what, last Sabbath? My friends, when you study the Bible with people, they are going to go through the most trying situations. The devil is going to try to discourage them. Don't be the vehicle that Satan works through. Help them. Encourage them. Continue studying with them. Introduce them to other people in the church. If that person is coming into the church through a small group, they already know at least 6 to 12 people. Statistics say you have to have at least 7 friends in the church in order to stay in the church. 7 friends, statistics say, people need to stay in the church. Most people don't go back to their first day churches because they disagree with the doctrine that they learned. They go back because they need fellowship. Because that's what God created us to be. Even in creation there were three beings there. And then when Adam and Eve got together in the cool of the evening to meet with the Lord for Bible study there were at least three people there. The largest number in a small group that, that God used in the wilderness, in the church in the wilderness, Acts chapter 7 in the King James Version says that Moses led the church in the wilderness. That church in the wilderness, 603,000 plus people were divided into groups of 10. Small groups ran the church in the wilderness. Very good precedent for that in your own churches because it gives people a support group for making decisions. Conviction is the key to gaining a decision. When, when you see that someone is under conviction, they may be crying for joy or crying because they're upset. They may be madder than a hornet or they may be so excited they go tell everybody. They may clam up or they may just be very vocal. Lots of different signs of conviction. They may avoid you. They may want to stay near you. All of these are signs of conviction. If somebody is upset with you about what you studied from Scripture, you give them a little bit of time to cool off, but then you go back over there and you're still that person's friend. Is this making any sense? You've been sitting here a long time, that's for sure. Ron and... Uh, not Ron and Carol. Matt. Raised a Seventh-day Adventist. His dad was a lay pastor. Immediately when he graduates high school, he goes into the army. He goes into the army because a head elder at his church told him that Seventh-day Adventists do not join the armed forces. 
And so he said, well, I'm going to show you. I'm joining the armed forces. He joined. Now he wishes he hadn't, but he joined. He was in the armed forces, gets out, meets one of our representatives, Zach Dixon, at the Oklahoma Conference Camp Meeting. Zach begins to be his friend. He's convicted that he needs to come to life. He comes to life. Last Sabbath, I got to baptize Matt because of what the Word of God had done in his life. We were halfway through the first week of our two-week Bible study course that we do. Halfway through that first week, Matthew comes to me and says, I need to get rebaptized. There's power in the Word of God. And God expects you to handle that power. He expects you to handle it delicately. This is not something that you hit people over the head with. It's not something that you force people to obey. It is not something that you even insist people obey unless they are your children living under your roof. Because when people make their own decisions, because God has spoken to them, they will stick with it. David Scott that I told you about in session two that was kneeling down over here with me, John chapter 10, 32, 33. David Scott still gives approximately six Bible studies a week. He's a full-time dad. He full, has a full-time job. Gives six Bible studies a week because he's excited about what God has done for him and excited about the message that we as Seventh-day Adventists have. Has this been fun for you at all? Fun? Informative? All right, then you guys need to take lots of those flyers over there back to your home church and put them in your home church. Okay, I'm not going home for a while. That's fine. You're going to go home for Thanksgiving, aren't you? If not Thanksgiving, you're going to go home for Christmas, right? So take some of those things, keep them in your room, do the little QR code scanner. That's kind of fun. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. The question is, when I give Bible studies, do I limit the time that I spend in someone's home? I do. I limit it to one hour. Even if I am not finished with that Bible study and they beg me to stay, I fin I'm in that Bible study in an hour. Very rare that I go over. Because I told them I'd be there for an hour. Christians don't lie. If you stay, especially on that first Bible study, if you stay over more than that hour and you stay for two hours... The next time you come back to their house, they're not going to answer the door because they don't have time to spend two hours studying the Bible. You got to spoon feed people because it's easy to digest when it's spoon fed. Yes, sir? The question is, what do you do when somebody is not making a decision? What, what topics have you studied with him? Almost everything. Did he make any decisions at all during those Bible studies? Okay. Hey, are you trying to make members of the Adventist church? I'm, I'm going to tell you something that may shock your world, may rock your world. You may think I'm off my rocker. I never study the Bible with people so that they will become Seventh-day Adventists. I study the Bible with people so that they can enjoy a deeper, closer relationship with Jesus. So I think that our motive has a lot to do with whether or not people are making decisions. You have to believe that they're going to make decisions. That's true. 
And one thing that you need to be careful of when you're giving Bible studies is watching that person come under conviction. If that person comes under conviction and you do not give them the opportunity to respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, then they have just programmed themselves not to respond in the future. Does that make sense? Uh, in Mark Finley's book, Persuasion, hi there, it's called Programmed Non-Response. That's what it's called. And he's actually given it a title, Programmed Non-Response. And all of us actually suffer from Programmed Non-Response. Let me illustrate. How many of you, uh, the first time that you heard that someone died in the Gulf War, you were upset? Yeah? The first time. The hundredth time you were still upset, but you never did anything about it. Because you didn't know what to do. What do you do about it? Now you hear that the six thousandth, thousandth, whatever soldier has died, it affects you very little. It's just another minor headline on CNN. Why? Doesn't it affect us? Because we've programmed ourselves not to respond. When you give Bible studies, you always have an appeal during those Bible studies. Is it clear? Are we on the same page? Are you tracking with me? Are you picking up what I'm laying down? Are you catching what I'm throwing? Are you smelling what I'm cooking? These are things to help people under to understand if people are with you when you're giving the study. At the end of that study, first of all, I ask, is it your desire? And then I say, what would keep you? I want to know if it's their desire because the Bible says, 2 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 8, verse 12, it says, if a man first has a willing mind, it is accepted of God as if he already has, has done it. So all God, need, all God needs is a willing mind. So is it your desire? And so when that person says, yes, it's my desire, I say, praise the Lord, what would keep you? Then they list things out. And I always, what's your first name? Irvy. Irvy, I always gain decisions along the way so that when I get to the end of that Bible study, I can ask them to make the big decision that that Bible study leads up to. And when, when somebody says to me, you know, I want to get baptized. By the way, I, I can't remember in my ministry where I've ever asked anybody if they want to get baptized. I've been doing this now for about 12 years. I can't remember ever asking someone if they want to get baptized. They always set, tell me, hey, you know, how do, I, how do I become involved with your church? I mean, do, do, how do I join your church? Uh, what's the method that, I, that your church uses to become a member? And I say, well, actually what we need to do is, um, well, the method that our church uses is baptism. And they say, all right, I'm comfortable with that. When, when do you want to do it? This is what they say to me. I say, well, now let's do this. Next time we meet... And I'm still responding to your question, Irvi. The next time we meet, I'm going to bring what I call a principles of faith sheet. And this principles of faith sheet outlines things that we need to understand before we get into a marital-like relationship with Christ. If that person is married, I'll say, did you know them before you got married? Well, not as well as I know them now, but did you, did you take them out to dinner? Did you talk? Did you spend time with them? Did you... Make sure you had common interests, and you do. This is what people do when they date, right? Or they court, uh, depending on the vernacular that you like using or whatever word you like to use. And so I will come over to their house next time, and I'll just go off this list. They'll read one, I'll read one, they'll read one, I'll read one. We'll circle what needs to be covered and check mark what they already agree with. 
So I, I, it's very rare that I take somebody all the way through 28 Bible studies before they ask if they can be baptized. And so we have to gain little decisions all along the way, and you have to be really looking for conviction. It's very neat when you begin looking for conviction, you're actually noticing that people, when you go into their home, uh, they usually have a particular expression on their face. During that study, when that expression changes due to something that you have studied, you know that that person is either confused or convicted. And so you say, is this clear? And they say, yeah, this is clear. Then you know that person is convicted. And you want to make sure that that person is ready to, that that person makes that decision before you move on. Does this make sense, Irving? So you've got to get little decisions all along the way. Because what we may be doing, and by the way, uh, forget exactly where the quote comes from, but the testimony of Jesus says that when we give ourselves wholly to God, and dedicate ourselves to him in his service, he makes himself fully responsible for the consequences. So don't think that you have failed at all. You're just learning. All of us fail our way to success. God makes himself responsible for what happens when we give Bible studies. So I take comfort in that. My job is simply to share the truth. This is probably why my baptisms... um, Unless I've been in the same area doing evangelism three times a year, which is what we did in Michigan, um, my baptisms usually come four to six months after an evangelistic meeting. I mean, I'll have some baptisms right then, but many of the other ones come after that. That's not the way I've always done my ministry, but I have found that um, the people that are ready at the end of an evangelistic meeting will make decisions and get baptized, and the people that aren't ready will continue to study. And so that's what we do. But you want to gain little decisions along the way. Long, long answer to a short question. Yes, ma'am? Hmm. Okay, the question is, will I address how to talk to family members that have lost some convictions? Sure. God has already taught that person the truth. Let God take care of it. Pray for that person. Pray hard. Now, if, if your loved one is, is going out and getting drunk and driving a car, I mean, it's obvious. You've got to say, hey, look, that's the most stupid thing you could do. Just stop that so that you don't end up in prison. Can you just stop? I mean, if you need a ride, I'll give you the ride. If you insist on going somewhere and getting drunk and you need a ride home, you call me. I, I don't know what the situation is that you're specifically addressing. You know, when, when I was first converted, I, I told my whole family that they were going to the bad place in a handbasket for eating meat. I was just so on fire that I burnt people. It's not a good thing. To be on fire is good, but you've got to have a little tact, right? A lot of tact. By the way, there's a young man here whose sister was an atheist. And uh, his sister was the friend of Lady A. And Diana was studying with Lady A. Well, Lady A, in, Lady A invites Jen to come to this Bible study. Well, Jen's an atheist. She's going to go save Lady A from Diana. Wave to me, brother. It's good to see you, man. His sister was the atheist that was studying with Lady A. Lady A drops out of the studies, and this, his sister, Jen, keeps studying the Bible. I got to baptize her and my brother back here on the same day, in the same reservoir. And her testimony was, I just 
couldn't get past studying the Bible. Every time we studied the Bible, I, I knew there was no God, but I became even more and more convinced that there was a God, even though I knew there wasn't. Conviction just continued to grow. And uh, she started studies with her brother, and praise the Lord, it's good to see you. Yeah. Uh, any more questions? Just let the Holy Spirit do His work. A lot of times we, we get in the way of the Holy Spirit because we, we are a microwave society. I want people to be cooked like this and I want them to be done right now. That's not, the way, that's not the way things really work in evangelism. It's true that at evangelistic meetings God has been preparing people all of their lives. They accept the truth at the end of that meeting or in the middle of that meeting. They express interest for baptism. You go visit them. You uh, set things up for their baptism set a date for their baptism and work toward that goal. If that doesn't happen, then you extend the date. We're not in a rush, by the way. We are not in a rush to make Seventh-day Adventist Christians. We are in a rush to share the truth so that the Holy Spirit can make Seventh-day Adventist Christians. That's what we are in a rush to do. And God needs people that will share the truth. Yes, ma'am. How do you deal with it yourself when a whole lifetime goes by? My grandmother... It hurts, doesn't it, sister? Because you, you have a deep burden for your family. Of all people, you have a deep burden for your family. And so it's a very emotional thing for, for all of us when we see that our family is going away that doesn't glorify God. Because we don't want to spend eternity without Him. I mean, that's just the reality for every one of us. But Jesus is the one that said, when the Spirit of truth has come, when He, the Comforter, has come, He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment to come. You continuing to be loving and kind and supportive and always being there for them is going to speak to your family a lot more than you just telling them that what they are doing is wrong. I mean, I, I, I've always told my kids, I don't, I don't care what situation you're in, I don't care what road you're really going down. I'm your dad, and I'm going to be there for you. And if I can get there fast enough, I'll get there. Um, my grandmother became a Seventh-day Adventist when my dad... By the way, if you want to go, you can. We're 15 minutes past five. Uh, my grandmother uh, became an Adventist when my dad, I think, was eight, nine, ten years old. Um, all the kids become Seventh-day Adventists. Papa never becomes a Seventh-day Adventist. We're talking 50 plus years later. Uh, we get a new pastor. His name was John Taylor. John Taylor comes to church. And here's this, this church in Montgomery, Alabama that is dominated by the Moore family and the Haney clan and the McFarland clan. My dad, a Moore, married my mother, a McFarland, right? And so here's all of this family in there, but no papa. There's, there's no papa from the Moore side there. He's nowhere to be seen. John Taylor says, hey, where's, the, where's Papa Moore? And my grandmother said, he's fishing. And John Taylor says, well, what time does he go fishing on Sundays? As soon as the sun comes up, he goes. John Taylor said, I need your address. The next day, he was in my Papa's yard with his fishing pole and his tackle box. My Papa never missed another day of church. My grandmother had been praying for him for more than 50 years. Papa died in Christ. Papa will be in heaven with the rest of us by the grace of God. 
Remember, many times we want with all of our hearts for people to be saved so much that we are willing to act the part of the Holy Spirit. But God never gave that to us. We are truth sharers. We are light bearers. We are glory reflectors. And we have to know that God himself is doing everything that he can to save our family. Everything. Let's pray, shall we? Jesus, we have spent sacred time with you. We've spent it studying your word, sharing testimonies. And we are very excited that we've been able to be with you. This has been profitable for us because we didn't waste this time. Thank you for being with us, Jesus. We pray that you will be with us now as we go to an eat supper or to our homes or to another meeting. We ask that you will be glorified in us and in how we share your truth with others. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.